Three, four years back, I was in a Taco Bell in Rockford uh, doing my normal gourmet dining, and um, a young man walked in who looked unique. He had, I'm only going to describe him from the neck up, he had a mohawk, and in, in the hair he had was only about that wide. It was like three big triangles that stood about that high and it was bright purple. I don't know how he got in a car. I don't know how he did anything other than get attention. I knew how he did that because he had mine. There were a number of questions I wanted to ask him, but I didn't. I think I remember somewhat being in a hurry. Um, but I did, I did have a couple minutes to kind of look at him and I thought there were chains, there were, you know, it was, it was unique. And sometimes when we describe people and say that they're unique, we're just trying to be polite. We're trying not to say, that was weird. That's bizarre. He's really strange. No, we just keep it polite. And we say, well, that's unique. But that's really not what we mean. But when I say to you that Jesus Christ was incredibly unique, that's exactly what I mean. He was a one of a kind. Never been anyone like him, never will be uh, again. He is the son of God and the son of man, and there will never again be someone with that same nature. I want to look at that today. Turn with me to John chapter 1. I'm going to talk about Jesus being the son of God first and then being the son of man. And then a little bit of what that might mean in our lives. Jesus as Son of God. If you turn to John chapter 1, we could spend probably a month on these three verses that we're going to look at. I'll probably spend a couple of minutes. Okay? They are absolutely packed with meaning, and there's much more we could say, but just giving you a quick overview. In John chapter 1, I'm going to look first at verse 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in the Greek language, the word word there is the word logos, L-O-G-O-S. <clears throat> My best understanding is it means something about something along the line of the plan or the intent or the thought of God. So in the beginning, we could say God had a plan. He had an intention. He had purpose. It, it was like God had a blueprint that he laid out ahead of time. It, it was his plan in terms of what was going to take place. This is before creation of the earth. This is before Jesus is, is born. Sometimes we, we tell our children and we talk about the past and we'll say, that was before you were even a sparkle in your father's eye. That's what this time is. God has a plan. Jesus may be a sparkle in his eye, but he's, he's not around yet. So God has that plan. He knew um, his plan is to create the earth, to create human beings, and he knew what would happen. And part of the plan was taking care of human beings because he knew they would sin. He knew they would fall. He knew they would need a savior. Um, he knew they would be separated from him and would need uh, that difficulty taken care of. So he has all of that in mind. He has a plan. And it says the plan, the word, the logos was God. What do you think of if I say Tiger Woods? Golf, right? Most people, at least, would say golf. If it's kind of that same way that the plan was, everything about God was about this plan. Look at verse 14. It says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only 
who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Between verse 1 and verse 14, I think, is when the conception of Christ took place by the Holy Spirit and then his birth. The word, the plan, the logos left the blueprint and, and became a human being, you know, be, became a person, became flesh and dwelt among us, um, became known to us. I don't think it occurred at all. any of that occurred before verse 14. I think there was that plan in God's mind, and then the plan came to fruition in verse 14, and Jesus was conceived and then born. Look at verse 18. It says, and I want to say beforehand, this verse is absolutely terrible in the New International Version. The translation here is horrid, okay? It says, No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. And whether you have New International or New American Standard or whatever, there's about three or four footnotes there all over the place. The translating committee took a lot of liberties here and put their bias in there very strongly, okay? Saying God, the one and only, when the footnotes all say uh, the only begotten of God or, or something to that effect, okay? No one has ever seen God, but the only begotten one who's at the Father's side has made him known. The point being, the word begotten, mean, essentially we would just think of it as being fathered, okay? Uh, that, that, that God caused Mary through his power to become pregnant. He was directly involved in, in causing Jesus to be conceived and then to be born. And he's the only one that God begot, beget. Okay. Um, those words are hard to say. He's the only one that God beget, that God fathered in that way. Now, in, in Luke uh, 3.38, it says Adam is also the son of God. But God didn't beget Adam. Adam was adopted, we would say. Okay? Jesus, though, God beget. He fathered Jesus through the power, through the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. And he made God known. He, he, um, as you look at Jesus, as you see Jesus, you come to know God by seeing him. Um, turn over to chapter 14 and look at verses 8 through 11. In John, John 14 and verses 8 through 11. And again, so much more we could say here, but time doesn't allow. 14 verses 8 through 11. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I'm in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. Philip says, show us the Father. Jesus says, Philip, if, you, if you've seen me, you're seeing what the Father is like. I'm in the Father. The Father's in me. These aren't my own words. He speaks through me. Look at, on your outline, there's Hebrews 1 and verse 3. It's another great verse. 
It says that the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So Jesus was the only begotten son of God. As you looked at Jesus, you saw a perfect representation of, of God himself. He's not God. He's the son of God. But as you look at him, you come to know God extremely well. Let me share this for illustrative purposes only. Most people have very little or no difficulty deciding who Nicholas's dad is. Now, he's not here this morning. I wouldn't embarrass him by asking him to come up front or whatever, but I joke about that a lot. If you've seen Nicholas, you have a decent idea who his dad is. Several years younger. Okay? I mean, he looks a whole lot like me. He talks a lot like me. He sounds like me. He's got kind of the same sense of humor. I behave better, but he's close. His, his feet, though, he gets from his mother. Okay? His, these are size 9 triple E. Nicholas wears a 13 double A. 13 double A. He get those from her. And the whole stubbornness thing, I think that comes from the other side, too. Okay? Now, you all wonder why I can say that and get away with it and not get in trouble and stuff. It's because it's true. I wouldn't stand up here and tell you stuff that wasn't true. Okay, and Linda will admit that as well. Won't you, dear? Okay, thank you. Well, that was a tense moment right there for me. All right. I don't want to be silly, but obviously, if you've seen Nicholas, you have a good idea of what the father looks like and acts like and sounds like and all of those kinds of things. Now, that's not a perfect illustration, but I think it's close. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Son of God. And you get a great representation of what the Father is like in his character as well. In 1 Corinthians 5.21, it said, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As the Son of God, Jesus is divine. He's God-like. He's perfect. He had no sin. And he hung upon the cross as a perfect, sinless Son of God and became sin for us. And that had to be a horrid moment for God to turn his back on his only begotten son who had become sin for us and put that sin to death. In Hebrews 4.15, it says, We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. See, the high priest, Jesus um, relates to us very well. He's been tempted just as we've been tempted, but he made the right choice every time because he's the perfect son of God. And 1 Peter 2.22 says he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Jesus is God's son, the son of God, divine, perfect. He made the right choice every single time. And I think we tend to, to diminish that at times, to diminish that part of Jesus' nature because we don't understand it extremely well. But he's the son of God. That's an incredible thing. 
But again, he's extremely unique because his mother was, was human. Turn over to Luke chapter 1. It's not December. It's not even Christmas in July. But we'll look at this that we typically would look at in December or in the Advent season. Talk about Jesus as the Son of Man. And Son of Man is Jesus' favorite title for himself. I think something like 88 times Son of Man appears in Scripture and 84 of those 88 appear in the Gospels because it was Jesus' favorite title for himself. He called himself the Son of Man often. In Luke chapter 1, the angel Gabriel has told Mary that she's going to have a baby. And she's troubled about that, about how it would all take place. Beginning with verse 30. It says, but the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. You'll be with child and give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. That's incredible stuff to be telling a Jew that your son's going to be the king, that he'll have the throne of David, that his kingdom will never end. That's all very incredible. But then look at verse 34. Mary's thinking and she says, how will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin. Mary knew how it worked. And she knew certain things hadn't taken place. So she didn't understand how she could become pregnant. Verse 35. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And so it's explained to Mary that God's power would come upon her, that she would become pregnant in that way and that her son would be incredibly special. Look over at chapter 2 and verse 40. So the father is God through his power. The mother is Mary, a human being. Jesus is born, and in chapter 2 and verse 40, it says, And the child grew and became strong, and he was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Apparently, he grew in very normal ways because he was a human being as well as the Son of God. In Galatians 4, 4, it says, But when the time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman, born under law. And so when the timing was perfect, Jesus was born to a human mother through the power of God. I think there's ample proof that Jesus was a human being, completely and thoroughly. He became hungry and thirsty. He ate. He became tired. He slept. He cried. And he did what every, more, what every human being does. He died. He was the son of God, divine and perfect. He was the son of man, human and mortal. And he was incredibly unique in that way. He relates to us in Hebrews 2.18. It says, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. And we read Hebrews 4.15. He's been tempted in every way as we are yet was without sin. So he relates to us. He knows the struggles that we go through. Now, obviously, Jesus didn't have the exact same temptations. There was not the technology in his day that there is now. But in terms of the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and those kinds of things, certainly Jesus was tempted as we are, yet he made the, the, the right choice, the perfect choice every single time. In some of his work as son of man, as human, in 1 Peter 3.18, it says, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. 
He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. Part of his work as both Son of God and Son of Man was to pay for sin. We talked about his sacrifice being perfect because he made the right choice every single time. And so his blood was indeed precious and accepted by God as payment for sin. He's also a mediator in 1 Timothy 2.5. It says, for there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He alone is absolutely perfect to be mediator because he's the son of God, perfect, divine. He understands that perfection. He understands God completely, but he's also the son of man. He's been tempted in every way as we are. He understands what it means to be human as well. And so he's the perfect go-between, mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. In 1 John 3, 8, it says, He who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. But the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And so there's that aspect of his work as well, overcoming the work of the devil. You know, I really appreciated the quote that I put there from J. Oswald Sanders. He said, most men are notable for one conspicuous virtue or grace. Moses for weakness, Job for patience, John for love. But in Jesus, you find everything. Isn't that great? In Jesus. You find everything because he's incredibly unique. He's the son of God. He's the son of man. He is everything that we need indeed. So how do we respond to that? Well, I think there are many ways, but I limited it to just three. I think we recognize that Jesus is the son of God, so we need to believe in his words. He's divine. He's godly. So we can trust in his promises He promised forgiveness, so I think we need to ask. He promised life, so I believe we need to give him ours. He promised to be a friend, so we can draw near to him. He promises rest, so we can come to him. He promises strength and courage and peace and many other things and never goes back on his word, so we can believe in his words because he's the son of God. He will keep his word on our behalf every single time. He's also the son of man. He knows what we go through so we can trust him because he can handle it all. He handled on our behalf crucifixion and death and then rose from from the dead triumphantly. He says that he is always with us, that he will never forsake us so we can cast our cares and our burdens upon him. And know that no matter what we are going through, he is there with us in the midst of that and will help us to deal with it and to handle it. I couldn't help but think of Ecclesiastes 11. 11.1. It says there, cast your bread upon the waters. And I'll stop right there. There's a lady in my home church that, that had her own little interpretation of that. She said, or, or she finished it in her special way. She said, cast your bread upon the waters and it'll come back buttered. I just always loved that. As we trust in Christ, as we cast our bread upon the waters, it comes back not with parquet, no, butter, buttered, strawberry jam. You know, it comes back great as we trust in the Lord because he's always with us. It comes back. And thirdly, Jesus loves us. So our response needs to be to love one another. In 1 John 4 and verses 9 through 11, this is, this is how God showed his love among us. 
He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The applications of that are absolutely limitless. You do that very well. I would just say keep it up, share with others so that the family keeps growing because we have an incredible Savior, the Son of God, the Son of Man, and he is indeed everything that we need. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for all that he means to us as the Son of God and the Son of Man, as our Savior, that we can relate to, that we can go to at any time, who works constantly on our behalf. Father, we just give you praise. Lord, most of all, may we share him with others who need to know, who need a friend, who need a Savior, who need to know that there's hope. Because the world is crazy and desperate, and so many need to know. Father, help us to share well. Jesus, in his name we pray.